0: Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November twenty-seventh, and it closes December eighth. Learn more at this is bracketracing.com we elite. BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete Powerglide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at BTEracing.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed Jared Pennington. He's cool hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener... Thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome to or welcome back to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed, where we sometimes discuss Chet Dragon and Stephanie Bustin-Nass. All right. I'm solo today. No, Jed. um, As we kind of embark or continue upon our journey, Uh, and our goal here is to uh, welcome each of the 2019 world champions to the podcast, uh, mostly throughout the off-season, but if we're going to be completely honest, um, this will stretch on. Uh, probably for the next couple of months, on and off, because we're going to sprinkle in some quote-unquote regular episodes along the way. If you listened a week ago, you know that Jed had uh, great discussions with NHRA uh, Pro-ET Summit World Champion Chris Johnston, as well as IHRA Modified ET World Champion Dustin Avendett. Today, we continue that series with a long um, multifaceted discussion with Jeremy Mason. Jeremy is the reigning 2019 NHRA Super Gas Champion. And Jeremy's career and history and just string of accomplishments within our sport is Somewhere between impressive and overwhelming. At just 31 years of age, obviously, he climbed Mount Everest last season to win the Supergas World Championship. He's also a former IHRI World Champion, multi time division champion, multi time bracket race winner. Like, he's accomplished a lot in a relatively short um, period of time. And so, within this conversation, we talk about his 2019 season, which was obviously a career year for him on the racetrack and winning the super Gas world championship. But that's not the only highlight. It's not even the biggest highlight of his year. Um, within literally a week of clinching his world championship, Jeremy became a father for the first time. Um, and so we talk about that and we talk about how his title came in a car that's got a lot of sentimental value, personal value to Jeremy and his family. And it's also like not the conventional, quote unquote, typical super gas car. In, in a world, in NHRA super largely dominated by 170 plus mile per hour, lightweight, purpose built roadsters, Jeremy won the world championship in a 158 mile per hour, heavy, like 27, 2800 pound um, Chevy two, all steel. Um, so just kind of proves that there's multiple ways to to go about this in a successful manner, assuming that you've got the drive, the dedication, the talent of Jeremy Mason. So um, went a lot of different directions with this. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I assume that you will too. So without further ado, enjoy. Jeremy Mason.
1: It's time for
0: The Big Interview
1: on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jen.
0: All right, joining us now, reigning 2019 NHRA Super Gas World Champion, Mr. Jeremy Mason. Jeremy, that's got a nice ring to it. Um, has, that, has that sunk in yet? What's it like to be introduced as the as the world champion?
1: Man, I don't actually know that it'll ever sink in, to be honest. Like, I still feel like I wake up every day and it's kind of a dream. Like, they're gonna take it away from me or something.
0: <laughs> I can promise that that's not going to happen. Um, if you think back to uh, to a year ago, Jeremy, did uh, you did your, your twenty nineteen season begin with high aspirations? Like, was the was a was a world championship a goal? Was it on your radar?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, every year I start, I'm I always try to go to like six divisionals and two or three national events, and and I'm always like, well, if I do good enough, maybe I get in the top ten or something. I've been in the top ten in super comp before, um, yeah. It, it never really like that's never one of my goals, like to be in the top ten is, but to win, I don't think I would ever set that as a goal really
0: sure what um and obviously long time um super comp campaigner and you had you had done a little bit of super gas with a different car if i remember correctly but i think that your super gas debut in your current chevy 2 was in middle of 17 is that right
1: yeah it was uh actually at the u.s national
0: that's right Mm -hmm.
1: yeah yeah we like worked all night to get that thing ready and it just got back from paint and you know, we went up to the U S nationals and it wasn't exactly the best on track performance, uh, because i never really run a door car before. Like I ran a buddy's door car before, but didn't have a lot of data. And, uh, you know, the wind, the wind changed on me and I kind of screwed that up, but I guess I lucked up and won best engineered at the U S nationals. Kind of my first event. And then the second event out in that car, uh, I went to Silver Dollar and won. So it kind of started out good, yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: bit of a precursor for things to come. So that probably answers my next question really quickly because that's late 2017. Um, As you came into 2019, how confident were you in that combination and your super gas run, I guess, for the season?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, 2017, the Silver dollar deal, like, it's one of those races that things just kind of fell my way, to be honest. So, 2018, like, we started out and, you know, didn't really set the world on fire, was kind of trying things, trying to make it a little more consistent and work on it, and, uh, you know, I came into Bowling Green, which was the last D3 race, maybe not that year, but, um anyways i wanted bowling green in it and you know i kind of had momentum blowing my way at that point rolling into 2019
0: sure sure um back to the start of your 2019 season where did you kick things off
1: yeah i always try to go down to d2 early in the year which is i think probably pretty dumb to start there because they have been racing like since january
0: you mentioned that but, to me uh, at the Division Three banquet. It's an interesting take. I, I I think you've got some validity there, but I never really heard anybody put it that way.
1: Yeah, you know, I always uh, pretty much lose first round every time I go to Atlanta. But uh, I try to start off my season there.
0: Um, so when you look back on, um, on 2019, like obviously with the championship season, there's more highs than lows. But let's yeah. start there. Like as you as you look back on the season was was there a low point and where did that come about?
1: Well, in the super guest car it kind of started pretty low because I went to Atlanta and honestly it was a winnable round, but I just screwed up the finish line. I let the guy have it by like I think one or two foul. And then I went into Columbus and I'm like, Well, I'm not gonna let that happen. So I had to run uh one of the Sawyers in the door car and I didn't realize that thing was 175 miles an hour, but I'm down there and i take flights, like maybe a football field. I don't exactly know what I took, but it was enough to break out by a bunch. Now I went to a national event in Bristol and I uh, got beat the second round there and I'm like, well, you know, I don't know, maybe I should change some things, but you know, then my season started turning around like, I went to Norwalk and made it to the final round there. That race actually rained out in the final round.
0: Oh, that's right.
1: uh, Yeah. We finished that in Indianapolis. So I got runner up there and then Indianapolis, I think I got to the quarters. Um, then basically Chicago was the next event. I made it to the semis. Bowling Green, I made it to the semis, um, and kind of all history from there. Uh, We went to the Rain postponed Norwalk event and won that event, and basically, I I don't know that I was driving any better than when I got beat in the second and third round, but things are just kind of going my way.
0: At what point when you look back, or was there a point where maybe you got done with a a certain race or maybe even a certain round and said, you know, like this might actually come together like this year. Is is there a point that you let yourself believe that a world championship was a real realistic possibility?
1: Yeah. I try to stay out of my head a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't really look and, uh, you know, people, people will let you know kind of the point situation without you even really checking, but
0: Ain't that the truth? Uh, I
1: guess it yeah. I guess it was like after Norwalk, you know, I won and I'm I was like second at that point solidly behind Charlie, Kenopick. And I knew I needed to like go to Gateway and do pretty good and go to um some other races and do pretty good and you know, I remember like Z Max. I got beat third round at Z-Max, but basically at Z-Max, I was ahead of Charlie by, I think, like 12 points, and he needed to win first round. And and basically, I rode over to the fence on my scooter after I won first round, and I saw him, you know, get beat. And then I started like, man, this, this actually might happen. I just need to kind of – I think at that point, I was at like 6'12", and I'd always heard like you typically need 650 to to get there. So I started thinking about it at that point.
0: And from that point, obviously it, it didn't hamper your uh, success at all, but do you, do you look back and feel like that weighed on you? Like that was uh, added pressure that you felt like you were pushing or anything, or did that just able to compartmentalize it?
1: You know, Back when I even back when I ran IHRA and and won a couple divisional championships and and when I won my divisional championship for NHRA in my super pump car, like I've always been the type of driver that comes from behind. So typically, if I get like ahead in the points for whatever reason, I think I take my foot off the gas or or whatever. Mm-hmm. So like I had to I had to really pay attention and be cognizant of like, Hey, I, 650 is my target. I kind of put myself in the mind frame as like I'm chasing somebody with 650 and I didn't get there. I got to 644. I needed to win Rockingham to get to 650, but I got runner up and kind of filled the deal at Rockingham.
0: Yeah, no question. What, um, when you look back, I would assume just looking at your, at your uh, ledger that, the national event win at norwalk would be the highlight of the season
1: yeah i, I think that that in combination with rockingham because mm-hmm. rockingham i mean there is a lot of pressure and you know if i lost first round at rockingham you're, you're talking to jim cap right now instead of me so um i really needed the points to to get it done at rockingham so I think I look back at it, even though I didn't win the event, I think that was probably my best event where I needed to perform and do and you it.
0: Know? Yeah, right. The stakes are high. You know you've got to go deep and to advance to the final round there. And that ended up being yeah. your last race of the season, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I had the opportunity to drive somebody else's car out west, but, you know, my wife was pregnant with her first child, and I decided it would be best to uh, – not do that
0: <laughs> probably a wise call right so, yeah, yeah
1: i would probably never never let that one down
0: <laughs> two-part question then kind of along those lines you had said earlier that um you know like preseason planning the there's always uh, a spot on the calendar for six-ish division races a couple of national events and we'll kind of see where it goes from there did getting involved in the championship chase provide significant logistic hurdles for you just in terms of getting to enough races to really compete?
1: Not really because I try to front load um, quite a few races and and I probably I would have went to six national events, but we had like baby showers and all this stuff going on so um really like i'm I'm in a pretty good logistical area to like hit d2 races and d3 races pretty pretty easily so
0: sure so of the like you had mentioned you left one national event on the table like your your points total could have been even higher obviously you did not need it um you did you come into the season saying okay these are the eight races that i'm going to go to or was it okay i'm doing good i'm going to pick up a couple more but like you said just geographically picking up a couple more wasn't really that big a deal
1: yeah, yeah. I typically fill out um, eight and six, like eight divisionals and six nationals. And then I say, well, I'll go to these first six, and then, you know, if I need to, I'll go to the following two divisionals, and then I'll go to these two or three div- nationals, and then I can kind of fill it up from there. Gotcha. So it's not like I'm i in any surprises where I'm like, oh, crap. I need right, to, yeah. what do I do to now, Go right? to yeah. Vegas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Gotcha. What um, I always do this with with single event winners, because I say to win an event, like everybody says you got to have that round that you get away with. And I typically agree. I would also also kind of argue that it works the other way too. like usually when you win a race, um, you have a you you have a round where your opponent makes a run that you typically wouldn't beat and you just happen to beat it like there's a round where you kind of stand on your head and there's a round where you make a less than stellar round and you get away with it like typically when we win events it's because it all fell into place and lined up right when you look back on your on your season as a whole um and you can take either one of these or in whatever order you want is there a pivotal round that you feel like you kind of got away with when you look back and or is there a time where you're like man i i I bowed up when I had to, and/or I'll take it three ways. And this is probably way too many questions at once. I'm not very good at this. So, is there a round you look back and go, "Man, I I deserve way better than that outcome"? When you take take that whatever direction you want.
1: Yeah, I had a. I actually, I'll go with the last question. So, I had a couple of rounds throughout the season where, like, I felt like I did everything right and just got beat which is weird because, you know, I won the national championship, but um, like in Bowling Green, for example, I had to run Bo Putner in the semis and, you know, he's an extremely fast car. And, and you know, we both leave and I think I'm like 021 to his 19. It's not a not a huge difference. And I get down and I'm like, I make the exact right decision at the finish line in my mind. Obviously, it didn't pan out for me, but. I get down there, and I'm like two thousand ahead of him, I drop exactly what I need to, and I run an eighty nine nine right <laughs> He ran like a ninety ninety with a one or whatever the math ends up at the end, but you know and then and then in St Louis, I had like the craziest thing ever happened to me. I was so, behind
0: you, yes, I saw this go ahead,
1: so you know i I go up to do a burnout, always have line lock three step, I'm going to do a burnout, mat it. And the car lunges forward like I'm in a dragster, you know, and it goes against the two step, which is not much higher than my three step. But, and I'm like, man, what? So I like regain my composure, put it in low gear. And I'm like, yep, probably not going to have a trans brake on this run cause they're all off the same power supply. Like that's just the way the K and R deal mm, okay. kind of works. And I'm like, well, I'm going to foot brake this thing and then I'll hit the trans break and kind of give it one last stab. If it holds, if I actually have a trans break, no problem. If I, uh, you know, if it lunges forward, then I'm just going to have to foot brake it. And I don't know if you ever tried to foot brake on a four tenths pro tree, but uh, it doesn't work out so good. Yeah. I think I was like 110 and, uh, and, and in my mind, I'm like, oh yeah, man, I'm smart. I figured out, like, I caught this thing. I, I'm, I'm gonna win this round. Like, I'm foot breaking this thing. Well, I forgot that, like, the throttle stop doesn't work. It doesn't shift. I mean, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pretty embarrassing run.
0: <laughs> and then a-
1: on top of that, the timing system screws up. So I'm down with the bit. I'm, I'm down. I'm like looking at the time slip, and there's like. I mean, it's basically gibberish. There's, like, I, I ran a six-second 60-foot. They're like, we're going to rerun then I'm like, man, I was going to lose that round anyways. And they're like, no, the timing system screwed up. And I'm like, I mean, I guess he we could have went red. I don't, I don't know. Like, a million things went through my head, and ultimately I was like, I'm not going to rerun this round. <laughs> but yeah, So you basically. didn't rerun? No, no. Uh, they – um I told dad to go up to the starting line and tell him, no, don't rerun. And then the NHRA official came down. He was like, Hey, like there's two timing systems. One runs in the background and turns out it was a legit run, but the one that displayed, I don't know.
0: Really? Okay. And that was like the quarterfinals at the gateway points meet, correct? Yeah. Down to five. Yeah. Okay. I was, I, I was in the midst of things. I just assumed that the race got rerun and you lost. Like that's, no actually a really cool story like I want to pull a little bit deeper on that because it would be really easy in that situation with all that you've got on the line because obviously this isn't the last race of the year but you know that you're you at the time you're leading points championship like you know that you're absolutely a contender for the world championship I would say that the average racer given that opportunity would jump at the chance to rerun and wouldn't tell the story that you just told and it sounds like ultimately maybe the decision would have come down the same way. And they would have said this yeah. exists in the background, which is something I've I've never heard of, but that's interesting. Right. But it sounds like, yeah. you said, no, like I, I, I know I didn't win that round and I don't want to win that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's still like to this day, probably 5% of me. That's like, well, maybe he could have red lighted sure. or whatever. But, but I mean, in all reality, I was really not even in the ballpark because I, I've never run this car wide open. I have no idea what to do. <laughs> yes. <even guess. laughs> I don't know what to do. So, I mean, yeah, trust me, I was in my car trying to figure out what was wrong with it. And the more I thought about it, I was like, nah, dad, don't tell them that I'm not going to rerun. I- I'm not going to fix it. Uh, we'll just kind of go to Z max. And dad That's- went off and I, I forget the, director guy's name came down and was like hey we think it's a legit run i'm like that's fine i don't care
0: right i'm not <laughs> gonna fight this No, that's awesome yeah. i mean that 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 says a lot about jeremy mason the, the 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 man the competitor you know what i mean like i just i don't there's a lot of people that would fight that tooth and nail and i, I think that's a pretty cool story yeah.
1: yeah i originally i was i was in my car getting ready to try to fix it but sure i just couldn't do it
0: What ended up being the problem, just out of curiosity?
1: Oh, so, you know, in an effort to try to make everything look perfect, uh, whenever I cut the dash out, the wire that runs from my K&R box up to my um, switch panel on the roof, basically, I guess, over the course of a year and a half, uh, it rubbed a hole in the wire and blew, blew a fuse. So I didn't know that that was the case. I took... I took that fuse out, and I'm like, man, well, it's a 10, I'm gonna put a 15 in it. Put it back in all together, started it up. Everything's perfectly fine. We go to Zoomax, run that whole next weekend. Oh, wow. Didn't have a problem. I unload at Rockingham, it blows a fuse immediately. And then I, uh, I finally figured out what it was at that point.
0: <laughs> okay, so that's where I wanted to go next, anyway. So that's that's a it sets the stage a little bit for the Rockingham points meet, which, as we mentioned earlier, uh, ended up in a runner-up and was your your last points claiming event of the season. Take me through that week. What was the what was the incoming points situation? You came in in the lead, but obviously, it's it's not a comfortable lead at that point, right?
1: Yeah, I had uh, – I needed to get to the, I believe, fourth round to even start gaining points. And right. part part of me, like my national event total was a little lower. But, you know, Dallas and the weather, we decided to go to Rockingham and, and see what we could do there. I knew if I won the event, I could get to 650, which was kind of my goal. So I went in, you know – Kind of, kind of, with that being the goal, um, we went through Rockingham. I think I had six twelve at that point, and I needed, uh, like I said, the win to get to six fifty. But I improved uh, with an I think Division two typically is an eighty four point runner up for me. Got yeah, for a six round race, here. right?
0: Yep. I'm yeah, actually 80, yep. point. Yep. And that. Ends up sealing it away. Obviously, it wasn't done yet. You had some, you had some, uh, some sleepless nights or some. You'd spend some time watching the live feed of the the races out west. I'm sure, but focusing yeah. on Rockingham for now. Like, what was the mindset coming in? Like, obviously, you said, if I win, I get to 650. And that's the max points. Like, that's that's the the ultimate goal. Um, like talk about a little bit your your mindset coming into that event, and then maybe how it changed round by round
1: yeah i mean i was just really focused like i took one round at a time and and interesting enough like i I was still chasing you in the super comp car like you you pretty much had it but i think if if i got runner up or one in the super comp car i took could have took the lead in that so i was kind of like juggling both yeah right yeah for the division championship
0: i think you make the final winner runner up right one of the two right so you got something to race for yeah
1: yeah. And then like the dragster, uh, you know, I, I just went in super focused and, you know, I, I hit the practice tree a little bit before, but I typically don't like, I'm not a religious practice tree user. And, you know, I go in and do the routine maintenance and kind of make sure everything's up to par and go from there. But, um, you know, first round I'm like, I, man, I had to run, I ran like Jim Perry, I ran, of course, Ray Miller beat me in the final. Like I, I ran uh, Steve Fur. Like I, I don't really think I had an easy round at Rockingham. So, you know, before when you asked me what was the defining weekend, I, I really think it was that one because, like, man, I was just, I had everybody who's anybody in a super gas car trying to take me out.
0: Yeah, and you're racing with more on the line than arguably any of them, right? Ray Ray's got a shot yeah. at the end, but right. Yep. The um, To that point, I guess, um, I know you talked about kind of overtaking uh, Charlie Canopic for the, the lead um, a, a What a month prior to this as the season wind down or maybe throughout the, the latter half of the season, once you realized like, Hey, this could really happen. This could, this could be a championship season. Is there any one competitor that maybe you were the most concerned with, or did it change over the course of those last few months?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, after Ray beat me at Rockingham, I was concerned with him because he, he only had one divisional left to claim um but he could get to me by winning and and he hadn't done anything but pressure. win
0: up to that point right I mean yeah <laughs> right. yeah
1: I mean that's a lot of pressure but man he was like like you know I was driving really good at rocking him he was driving a little better it seemed like so you know him initially and and whatever happened to him at Vegas I, I don't remember but you know and in the back of my mind, I was always worried about like Jim Capp because you know he did he did good last year too, I think, and he came into Vegas like basically could claim all the remaining races, and and had a pretty decent shot of of getting, I think he could have got to like six eighty or six ninety maybe the way I had it added up, and then kind of an interesting one like way back there but he only had like two races claims seemed like was Bo Butler and you know after he bought that car he was like winning everything so in the in the back of my mind I was worried about him also
0: for sure and it didn't become official until Pomona right
1: yeah uh, I was in the airport (laughs) on my way to Pomona and I was watching NHRA TV and I didn't know it at the time, but NHRA TV has a delay. So I'm like, they're like, ah, Jim, I saw Jim Capp's car coming up in the burnout box and his name flashes up on the screen. I get like 12 text messages. Hey, you're the champ. (laughs) And I'm like, man, I don't know where you're sitting, but he has not even done a burnout yet. (laughs) So yeah, but it was, it was stressful, man. I, I hate like, just sitting there watching. Like I'd rather be out there racing and, and trying to make something happen, you
0: know. For sure. I, I agree completely. And it's just an odd feeling too, whether you're at the racetrack or watching online, like you just hate to root against anybody, but you know if this dude loses, it's really good for you, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I struggle with that a lot actually.
0: <laughs> yeah. What was the scenario at Pomona? Did Jim had to win the race? Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think he had to win the race. Gotcha. Oh, and man. he, uh, I think he had like parts failure or something. I, That's I right. It was some it weird was, run.
0: Uh, he was way slower or something, wasn't he?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I was talking to Ray out out in Pomona, and I think his transmission or converter or something <laughs> kind of screwed up. So
0: it wasn't meant to be.
1: Yeah,
0: Or it was meant to be from your perspective, however you want to look at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. <laughs> um, you alluded to it briefly earlier, um, obviously winning an NHRA national championship, a uh, culmination of a, you know, a lifelong dream for all of us, you know yourself included, I'm sure. Uh, it wasn't the only thing going on in your life as <laughs> the 2019 season began to wind to an end. Um, tell me a little bit about what you had going on personally.
1: Yeah, kind of at the beginning of the season, and I believe it was like right before my birthday. She was gonna wait until my birthday to tell me, but I think she cracked like the week before my birthday. She came in and I was like, "Hey, I've got a early birthday present for you," and I'm like, "Oh, that's weird. Uh, okay, cool." And I like open this thing up, and it's like a baby changing pad, and I'm like, "What?" It like took a second to sink in. I, I'm like, "Oh." <laughs> Oh crap! Like, we we need to get like nurseries and stuff ready. (laughs) I immediately, (laughs) yeah, nine months down the road, I'm already thinking about getting cribs and stuff. But, but yeah, you know, we were expecting our first child, a baby girl, and uh, you know, through all throughout the season, um, you know, it was getting closer and closer and. Uh, she was, I think the original due date was November nineteenth or eighteenth, and she came on uh, November eighth. So, yeah, it was a crazy, crazy experience. It was an awesome
0: experience. Sure, right. No, I uh, I remember uh, texting. And obviously with the podcast, we're, we're breaking down the, the points, you know, on a, on a weekly basis. And, uh, I think I was texting with Dean McIlvain It's like, so Jeremy's got one national event left. Like, is he going out West? I don't think so. <laughs> They're having a baby. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, what, uh, yeah. so where did that fall in the calendar? Like November 8th, that's really close to Pomona. Obviously you ended up coming out for yeah. the bank. But what was the time frame, and what was that logistically like?
1: Yeah. So, you know, originally I was just going to skip the banquet because I think the banquet was the 19th and she was due the 18th. I can't remember. It was like a day apart. And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, if if I get lucky enough and win this thing, I'll just have to like text the division director. I, I don't know. I don't know if anybody has missed one before, but um, <laughs> yeah, I was like trying to make plans for that and. Uh, you know, she came came a couple weeks early, um, kind of like her last ultrasound. The doctor like came in real concerned. He was like, Yeah, she's not growing like she should. Uh I think we're gonna induce you. Uh I'm like, Oh, okay, like when? He's like, uh today. Oh.
0: Oh, uh, <laughs> oh okay.
1: so we do that and everything's fine baby's healthy she's like six pounds two ounces and mom's healthy of course and you know I still hadn't officially won and I was talking to my wife and I'm like I don't know like should I should I try to go to Pomona and like you know Mike Boehner had loaned me he was a division seven champion this year he he said hey like if you need my car, you can have it i'll take it to pomona and i'm like i think it's too like soon for me to leave on thursday but my wife was like well you know fly out saturday evening you know get out there sunday you know if you win you can go to the banquet on monday or whatever and come back and you know that's what i ended up doing Um, and you know it kind of worked out i didn't have to stress on sunday and worked out before I got on the plane
0: tell uh, the listener a little bit what the, the banquet experience is like and then just from a personal standpoint like how uh, how fun was it but at the same time like um they're solo you got a what two week old baby at home like imagine that there's some yeah. guilt involved there like there's got to be a lot a lot of lot going on in your mind as, you, as you're out there and feeling soaking this in
1: the yeah I mean like the The awards banquet, it, it's it's crazy. Like I, I didn't really even know what to expect, but you know they do the sportsman deal. And you've been to it, but you know it's it's a smaller deal, like right before the main awards show, and you know it's very intimate. It's just like you and your family. And Dean McElveen was already out there, and my dad actually went out there with me, and then you know all the other champions and their families, and some of the division directors and I sat right beside the owner of like Brainerd um, or Vandermeer. I can't remember, but, uh, you know, you get up and give your speech, but it's really only in front of like maybe 50 people total. It's a completely different experience than the divisional championship deal, which I've done before. And, And it was really cool. Like, you know, Alan Reinhart was up there introducing everybody. And like, he always does his homework like talking about you and what you've done and what car and all that stuff. And then you kind of get ushered upstairs and to the, like, what is it? The Ray Dolby theater. And it's like, you can barely see the front. I mean, it's huge. And you walk out on stage and I mean, it's really a special, special deal. Everybody in a made it a cool, cool evening for us. And then, yeah, I was texting my wife and stuff, uh, giving updates on like how everybody was doing. And I, I did feel a little guilty. It was, you know, both are kind of like once in a lifetime opportunities. So.
0: <laughs> no doubt. No <laughs> was, doubt. Not something even, That's right. Yeah. No, oh, that's awesome. And I, to your point, like the, the, the spectacle uh, that is the, the NHR banquet is difficult to, uh, to describe and explain until you live it. It's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. All right. So a couple of different roads I want to go down here with Jeremy. We talked just real briefly about your car, um, but obviously there's some history to it. It's it's unique um, as, a, as a super gas car in this day and age. Um, talk a little bit about your history with that car, because this isn't something that you just stumbled into to run super gas with, right?
1: Yeah. Um, basically before I even started running juniors, my dad purchased this car from, I guy it was local. It was sitting out in the field rotting for all intents and purposes. And he, he kind of, uh, drove home on a bucket. Like the floorboards are out of it. Uh, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot. It was a six cylinder car. Um, basically stuck it in our garage, uh, actually a buddy's garage. And, you know, I was there with him, me being that young. I don't know that I helped much. I probably held a lot of flashlights and stuff, but <laughs> he, he, you know, welded all the floor pans back in it. And he welded up, uh, like a six point roll bar and put like a 355 small block Chevy in it and started running some no box stuff and, you know, it was like real dark green. I mean, it was a mini tub, like basically a super stock car without a fancy engine and all the trick suspension stuff. But, uh, you know, I started running juniors when I was almost eight years old (laughs) and he kind of like parked that thing in the garage and we, he would run it like maybe three or four times a year. He just, Said he enjoyed watching me do it. And uh, kind of when I out, outgrew my junior, we couldn't really afford another brand new junior. So he was like, hey, you want to try to drive this deal? And I know there's been a lot of like controversy with people under 16 driving cars, but you know, my local track was okay with it. When I was 13, they made us uh, sign waivers and all this stuff. And I started running no box on that thing when I was 13 um back in 2001 Uh it actually still has it still has the sticker like the very first event i remember i went to the bracket finals in my junior and then i was like man i can't fit in this car anymore like i i mean basically you had to shoehorn me in it and i think they'd had to take the jaws of life to get me out of it if i cut if i wrecked it and dad you know he was like well you know we can try to make some test passes or whatever and like i got in it and basically never got out but the first event after the bracket finals like i made it down to eight cars in a no box car in that car so yeah it's been our family a long time since i was three years old
0: no kidding and uh so like as your career progressed i remember meeting you and you were driving a dragster what was what was the progression of the Chevy two along that time frame? Was was it still a race car for a long time? Or
1: yeah, um, basically, I started running that car uh, when I was thirteen, and, and I, I did relatively well in it. Like I was saving my all my winnings, and I the undercover car that I had um uncle guy, I think he, he was going through a divorce or whatever, and he sold it to us, like, really cheap. So I took all the winnings from that Chevy two and bought, like, a hard-tail undercover dragster uh, when I was 16. And, you know, I couldn't, at the time, afford to run two cars, but I didn't want to sell the Chevy two, So we kind of just parked it in the garage and let it sit there. And I would get it out every now and then and run no box or put a box in it and run box with it. But... You know, I run that dragster from, I forget the exact year when I was 16 until 2014 when I won the IHRA championship and then uh, in Quick Rod. And then I kind of bought my current Miller car and built the Chevy 2 and kind of expanded from there
0: so at what point did project chevy 2 really take place because obviously what it is today is not what it was 15 years ago
1: yeah i think i think it was mid-season 2016 you know me and dad I, i've always really wanted to run super stock and I, I keep that idea around for like a really long time actually and you know, just looking at it, it really doesn't make sense to leave off the bottom in one car and leave off Pro Tree in another. And, you know, and Dad was like, Yeah, I don't really like, say ask us to take heads off and race, I don't really want to do that. So, <laughs>
0: sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was like, Well, you know, I could build a roadster, but, you know, I got this car sitting in the garage and it might not be the ideal super gas car, but, like, let's just, let's just make it a super nice car. And uh, so we talked to Dean and I'm like, you know, I want to go completely different. Like, everybody's got like carbon fiber, fiberglass, the car weighs 2,200 pounds or whatever roadster weighs, I don't even know. But I told Dean, I'm like, I want to keep like, it's got the steel fenders, um, steel roof hood, steel doors, steel like basically everything. Um, the body is all original. It's a stock wheelbase. All we did was just lower it down pretty low. And, uh, you know, of course the big block Chevy in it, but, um, like the windows still crank up and down. So I don't even have to open the door to get my time slip. It's kinda cool. And, uh, it's got the, it's got the factory dash, the factory dash uses in and out. It's really not functional anymore, but I mean, it's factory. Um,
0: now, and the I'm result, definitely not in the
1: fact. Ahead. I'm definitely not in the factory seating position because if you really look at it, I sit in the back seat. But <laughs> other than that, it's pretty pretty close.
0: <laughs> no, and the result is just a, a breathtakingly awesome machine. That, to your point, you know when you when you debuted the the new version of the Chevy two, it was best engineered at Indy. Like you can't you can't get a higher honor than that in this sport. And. Yeah. In addition to being, you know, arguably, it's through whoever, whoever's eyes they're looking at. At least in my opinion, probably the coolest car in Supergas. It's also got a ton of sentimental value, right? That you know, had you gone the the roadster route or, or done a, a completely new chassis car, obviously would not have that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, you know, it's special, and I think it's it's pretty cool to win in something like that. You know, like my dragster, I've won in it, but like I really remember like I'll cherish this this forever.
0: Basically. Yeah, no doubt. And I think in addition to the 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 personal, you know, aspect of this and knowing that it, you know, it's a car that you grew up working on and and made your first, you know, full-size passes down the racetrack in, that's a cool story in and of itself, but you kind of mentioned it earlier in that obviously you've got a great tool for the job, but most people would not look at your super gas car a year two years ago and say that's the ultimate super gas car to your point it's heavy yeah it's uh it's not it's it's not the fastest car in the category have there been any specific you know in a category where everybody gets caught up on being the fastest car in the category you know um yeah were there any specific um hurdles to that that you had to overcome or did this kind of fall into place more easily than most would expect
1: um, yeah, I mean, like, my supercomp car is not the fastest car out there, but whenever I first debuted, it ran, like, 179 180. So, uh, it seems to be more middle of the pack now, but yeah, <laughs> back right. when I debuted it, when I debuted it, was, it was pretty fast. So, I sort of got used to chasing people, but, you know, prior to that, in my IH days, I had a small block, like, 355 cubic inch dragster that ran, man, I, I don't even, I think it ran 155 on the stop. Like it was slow. I, I'm not real for sure how much under the index it would have been, but um, so, you know, I mean, kind of, kind of like it, it didn't take me long to get back in the, in the rhythm of things, to be honest, of, of always looking behind me. And, and I'm not by far the slowest car in super gas, but I'm not far enough the fastest either.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess you'd be fairly mid pack. You go like upper 150s, right? Yeah,
1: 150. Uh, yeah, it depends, but like 155, 156, something like that. Right.
0: What? Um, any issues with the, the heavier type super gas car getting a light? Or has that never really been a concern?
1: You know, um, whenever we first brought it out there was a little bit like a couple of tracks I had some problems with and uh made some changes uh in the kind of front strut area and it I really the only track and probably got me beat at Rockingham, that I struggled to get a lot of that's like Rockingham. and I was zeroed out and like every round I was like 011 012 015 something like that but that I mean that was it that's all it had. Now, I can do things. I like can put, like, a 22-and-a-half-inch the Mickey Thompson front tire on it um, and get a little faster a lot or I can shim out the trans brake solenoid. So, I mean, there's still quite a bit uh, left in it, I think, to eliminate that concern. But, yeah, I mean, it is a little more difficult. I know, I know like, my dragster, I run quite a bit more delay. So, I would imagine in a roadster, you probably can run 30 40s on a pretty tight track if if you need to
0: obviously it was not a major has not been a major concern for you or or not something that you could not overcome so which is cool i just think it's neat to to realize for all of us that you don't need a 175 mile an hour super gas car to do something like you've done you know what I mean obviously you're a special case and there's a ton of 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 work and skill that goes into that but there is a lot of different ways to go about this successfully
1: you know I mean yeah I I like having a fast car too but you know at the end of the day you put your helmet on and I mean it's really just a bracket race you gotta accept they pick the number for you so I mean there's tons of 650 door cars getting it done and big money bracket races every weekend. So
0: true. Well, that's uh, let's back up just a little bit because you've kind of walked me through your progression of, of getting started from the junior dragster to the, the original version of the Chevy two and ultimately into a dragster. What was the catalyst for racing in general? Like I, your, your father raced as you were growing up.
1: Yeah. And uh, you know, I've always been, like, kind of mechanically inclined. I think my mom told a story, like, when I was two years old or something, I took a high chair apart with a screwdriver, and she figured it was uh, time for me to come out of that. But, uh, but yes, you know, I you're just working around the garage with him and been going to the track with him. And then, ultimately, like, I'm pretty sure I was seven years old whenever, like, junior dragsters really – kind of hit Kentucky. I think they've been around for a little bit, but, um, back in 96, I went to the track and I was like, you know, I'd kind of be interested in that. And he was like, okay, you know, we can order one. And we ordered like, there was a mail order catalog. I remember it was like a motivational tubing catalog or something. Mm-hmm. We ordered a kit out of that thing and welded it all up and put like a lawnmower engine on it and it, i forget it ran like 14 something but you know it it was enough to for me to learn and, and kind of go from there but
0: did uh did success come immediately or, or relatively easily or no
1: yeah i don't think in 96 it did yeah i was still like learning but i, I forget the first year it's sad but i forget the first year i want to championship at my local track, maybe like, maybe like 98. It wasn't too long, you know, it took two or three years before, uh, before I got good enough to compete on a regular basis.
0: And I would assume just because it was like this for me and, and I, and I think it's like this for a, a lot of, of, uh, racers today, when you look back that, obviously there was interest, sounds like you had interest in the mechanical end, it's it's something that your dad likes, you like the, the sport itself, but that passion, that interest seems to multiply when there is early success, right?
1: Yeah, and, and it you know it really helps to have a competitive personality, like it doesn't really matter what I'm, like, like if me or you go bowling, I'm going to try to beat you at bowling, even though I don't bowl, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know, that's where it comes from, really.
0: And then from the junior, you
1: say you, uh, go ahead, go ahead. I don't know, I was going to say, because like at the end of the day, you know, we get into it because we like fast cars, but like a year in to driving a 180 mile an hour super comp car, it's it's really not that fast anymore, like you get used to it. So you got to like go back to the competitive nature of it and try to like win races and championships. And that's kind of what keeps me coming back.
0: Yeah, no, I agree one hundred percent. So, just going back, kind of through the uh, the trend, the progression from uh, junior to XG. So, you transferred pretty much full time into the Chevy two at, at thirteen, um, and it sounds like that that graduation was a pretty smooth one. You said just a couple weeks in, you're down to eight cars at the bracket finals, um, begin having some pretty significant success. How far along was it? You said before you purchased your first car.
1: Uh, I think it three years after I started driving a Chevy, two when I was 16, and gotcha. like, I didn't have enough money to finish it right away, so I kind of piddled on it in the garage for, I think, maybe a year, year and a half after that.
0: And then I remember a ton of success in the IHRA quick ride category culminated, as you just kind of brushed over earlier, with the World Championship in IHRA, and was it 2014?
1: Yeah, 2014.
0: And I know um, we may have even discussed this real briefly at the, at the division three banquet, but we actually made a pretty good segment of it here on the show that you're in really rare company having an IHRA world championship and an NHRA world championship on the mantle. Like we did our best. We don't, we can't, we don't have this crack research team. And I don't know, there's like the IHRA records specifically are pretty difficult to find but the best that we yeah. could come up with was like eight racers in history that have done that what yeah. does that mean to you
1: yeah you know it's something i would have never even thought about whenever i started racing even even big cars when i was 13 like you know i remember i always used to go to clay city and there'd be a guy there testing by the name of rest cook you know him but he's uh he was always like a really good racer. And, you know, I always was like, yeah, one of these days, I want to, you know, put a throttle stop on my car and maybe try to, you know, win a race, right. It started with there and that didn't, you know, I, I think 2010, uh, Clay City had a couple of uh, IHRA quick ride races and I think like I won one out of the two or something. And then I was like, man, I, I think I'm just going to like try to travel and, run IHRA and kind of see what happens. you know I did that and I I won like, you know, if IHRA was on the NHRA points championship scale, I think I would have won like probably three national championships with them (laughs) because in in division three, like, man, I went on a tear and I would, I would win like five races a year and, uh, but whenever we got to the tournament of champion race, I, I don't know what happened. I would just, I don't know, one year my car didn't shift. The other year, like, I just screwed up the finish line. It it just didn't come together until 2014. I kind of made all the right moves and got lucky a round or two and sealed the deal on the IHRA side. And then kind of after 2014, I was debating, like, I could tell the car counts in IHRA were kind of dwindling, and you know, NHRA ended up being a little closer to me because they made some changes on the IHRA side as far as schedule goes, and I was like, well, I'm just going to switch over to NHRA and kind of try my hand over there, so that's kind of how the IHRA to NHRA transition happened.
0: I'm interested because I hadn't really thought it through when I said that you did won the, the IHRA championship in 2014, but that is the, the tournament of champions format, like contrast yep. that down the wire aspect, of the NHRA with it all happening in one day. Cause like, I just assumed the, the I think the only tournament of champions I ever participated in was the first one that we were at Rockingham for like five days and never really got the race in. Like it was just a mess, Yeah. but, yeah. um, like, I would imagine that there's a the, – the atmosphere for something like the Tournament of Champions has got to be pretty awesome, right, especially in yeah. the later rounds. And I'm just wondering how does that compare and maybe to some extent, like, how did that prepare you for, like, your Rockingham experience this year?
1: You know, the, the only thing on the NHRA side I can compare the Tournament of Champions to is, like, the All-Stars because you have to qualify for the All-Stars and it's a – it's an event where you're kind of like put on a pedestal in a way and you have to, you know, it's high, high stakes, high pressure type, type atmosphere. Um, and you know, it, it, it prepared me pretty good. I think it, I think it made me take pressure a lot better than I had in years past because you know, it didn't really matter. Like I could have went to eight races and won eight races and you can still get beat first round in the tournament champion and finish like 16th in the world so you know it it really it makes your season worth it like you've got to compete you got to do good because you got to qualify but you know i can finish third in the division and still end up being a world champion on the ihra side so
0: right because it all comes down to the one event
1: but but it prepared me like perfectly for situations like rockingham because you know you go in you know I, you know i basically gotta win this and you know it it kind of my nerves just are calm in, in that type of situation
0: and they are done that yep okay so you talked about coming up watching somebody like rusty cook at clay city and it would be cool to to just race at that level be cool to win an event and then you win an event you know it'd be fun to chase this maybe chase a division championship you win a division championship and i'd really like to win a world championship you win a world championship well i think i'm gonna try nhra now you're king of the mountain in nhra as well so what's next what now
1: (laughs) well uh, you know i I'd like to do it in multiple classes, but, you know, I really like my setups and everything in super and super gas. I think I'm going to just pursue, like, try to get more, you know, try to, my goal is to really be like a top 10 player in both cars consistently year after year. And then I, I really think the difference in like finishing sixth and seventh is maybe a few lucky rounds and a few good rounds here and there. I don't know that if you're consistently in the top 10, I think you'll compete for national championships along the way as well. So that's that's kind of my goal. I think eventually I'll probably try to go to a different class, but right now I'm going to kind of stay with super calm, super gas. Plans for uh,
0: 2020 specifically?
1: Yeah, I'm going to, I mean, kind of the same thing, start out in uh, Atlanta or no, I'm going to start out in ZMAX this year uh, in a national event because I don't want to end up in the same boat as this year and leave a national on the table. (laughs) And then I'm going to go to Atlanta and then kind of run my full D3 schedule and see what happens for me. But basically, you know, I'd like to sell my dragster and get another one. Um, But if that doesn't happen, I mean, my car is a very good car so and then just kind of try to finish top 10 in both cars do good on the division side and hopefully that translates into a good national run as well
0: well Jeremy congratulations on an incredible um, 2019 season And, and let's be honest like just congratulations on an incredible body of work over the last what I guess two decades now but and you're doing yeah. all this, you, I think you told me, um, pre-recording, you're 31 years old, so there's still, there's still a lot of, uh, of good years left in front of you, like there's no telling where this ends up taking you, but the ride to this point is, uh, is impressive, so congratulations. Thanks, thanks. Um, and thank you for taking the time to uh, to come on the podcast with us and share your story. I think it's been uh, illuminating, probably informational, and to some extent, inspiring. So that's always good. Um, but we're not going to let you off the hook real easy. I don't know if you've ever listened to the podcast before, but we typically close these discussions with uh, just a little bit of rapid fire. These are usually uh, not necessarily racing-related, quick answer, quick question. We tend to get a little bit off the rails. So you up for it? Yeah, sure. All right, least favorite type of music?
1: Uh, uh, Classical. That's easy. I mean,
0: (laughs) (laughs) so that's not in the earbuds when you pull under the tower in the Chevy.
1: No, no, not at all.
0: Um, Since you've got both, uh, I have a feeling where you're going to lean. But I got to ask the question: door car or drag strip?
1: Door car. More uh, more sentimental. It's uh, a little more fun to drive, and you know, it's cool. I mean, it's cool to shut a door behind you when you get in the car. Yeah.
0: Does anyone that's actually raced both with regularity actually answer dragster? No. Uh, um, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we go out for a, a celebratory uh, dinner to uh, commemorate your latest uh, race win or championship. Uh, how are you ordering your steak cooked?
1: Uh, medium.
0: 89. I'm a medium kind of guy myself. Uh, eighth yeah. mile or quarter.
1: Uh quarter. I think eighth mile is a little tighter competition, but quarter leaves a little more uh, a little more for the driver.
0: Yeah, I agree. A little more room for uh, creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Last question, and this one's pretty open ended. Um, what makes Jeremy Mason smile?
1: <laughs> well I like uh you know, I like listening to the good Good music, and uh, every now and then I'll like throw on some uh, stand up comedy on Netflix and uh, just laugh.
0: Absolutely, man. Again, uh, thank you for taking your time uh, joining us here on the show. Congratulations on your championship. Congratulations on your body of work. Congratulations on being a brand new dad. Um, again, Jeremy, thanks for joining us here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure.
0: I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And and, and you can do that on... Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing uh, our show today. Just subscribe that way that you know that you have got the latest uh, edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. Reasons to use BTE Tune Up services. Number one, quick turnaround time. You won't be out of commission for half the season while you're waiting on your parts. Number two, unparalleled customer service and responsive communication. Reason number three, all brands of parts are accepted. It's not like they just work on BTE parts. Number four, BTE offers freight shipping discounts. They are located in the shipping capital of the United States near Memphis, Tennessee. And number five, reason to use BTE tune-up services? Quality work from knowledgeable technicians helps your system achieve peak performance. All right, so that will wrap up today's episode of the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast on behalf of Big Jed and producer Mark, uh, I want to say thank you to our guest, Jeremy Mason, for sharing uh, his time, his insights, his experience with us today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, and also want to thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, if you enjoy the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast in general, do us a favor and uh, tell your friends about it. Uh, leave a review uh, wherever it is that you're looking for this podcast. Five stars, five stars. And um and and leave a note, uh, about the podcast. It really does make a difference in the metrics and beyond anything else, um, to your racing friends, like tell two friends about the show. And, um, I tell you what, if you want to go a step further, grab their phone and, um, grab your friend's phone and, and, and subscribe to the sportsman drag racing podcast so that they can find it easily. Uh, we would appreciate that. Typically it is, uh, this part of the show where I do some shout outs, Usually we reserve the shouts for uh, the shows that Jed and I do together, which will be coming up. uh, We've got one scheduled next week. So you'll get the golden tones um, back on as well as my own own gas bagging. So look forward to that. Um, But uh, I wanted to do a little bit of an unconventional um, shout out today because I actually I got a message earlier today that that meant a lot to me. Um, So where the shouts are, are normally funny, this one takes a little bit more serious tone. Um, but uh, this was a message that I got today from uh, Scott Heyer, who is a, uh, a, a really accomplished racer out of the Denver, Colorado area. Uh, I've met Scott uh, racing at the Spring Fling in, in Vegas several years ago and kind of kept in touch. But uh, he sent me this message, and I just, I don't know, I wanted to share uh, and shout out Scott and his father. It's, the message is this. Luke, uh, I wanted to give you more of an unconventional thank you for the work uh, that you and Jed and your team put into the podcast. Today, my father started chemo and radiation, and his request as I'm sitting in the chair next to him for the next seven hours was headphones so that he can listen to Luke and Jed talk about something that makes him happy, racing. Thank you for putting a smile on my pops' face. And um, so I just wanted to shout out Scott and his father and their family and just say how humbling and how much of an honor it is to provide some source of entertainment maybe release maybe some distraction um in this time so uh mr hire just want to let you know we are thinking of you uh best wishes from myself from jed from mark from uh, your friends here at the sportsman drag racing podcast Again thanks everybody for listening and we will see it's you next all we got a right time do whatever we got do you never know